All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hi, this is Nick Freitas and welcome back to Making the Argument. Today we're going to be discussing fascism. That's right, four reasons why I think fascism is a left-wing ideology. And this is probably going to come as a shock to a lot of people because obviously if you listen to Antifa, if you listen to college professors or pretty much anyone on the left, what you end up hearing is that anybody to the right of Hillary Clinton is clearly either a fascist or, or two steps away from becoming a fascist. But if you actually look at what defines fascism, if you actually look at the people that were supporting fascism and what they believed, what you find is something, uh, let's just say it's very, very different from the popular narrative that we see coming out of Hollywood or Antifa or other left-wing organizations. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to first come up with a working definition of fascism, right? It can be a little bit hard to nail down at times, but there are common characteristics. We're going to define those, and then we're going to get into some you know, reasons why fascism is a left-wing ideology, right? That it bears almost no resemblance to conservatism um, or classical liberalism in the way that we look at it within the United States or within other, um, you know, kind of Western uh, European definitions of these words, right? Obviously, conservative as a philosophy can mean different things depending on where you are in the world, but we're going to compare it to what we, what we generally associate with American conservatism or, or even what you might call English conservatism, et cetera, right? So first things first, what is fascism? All right, well, we've got three countries to work with, and we've got a lot of fascist thinkers and, and what they wrote and what they described fascism as to work with here. And so we're going to use that. And the two countries we're going to talk the most about are Nazi Germany and uh, Mussolini's fascist Italy, right? Franco Spain is also in there, but, but the two where we really get the kind of the thought leaders within fascism come from Italy and, um, and Germany. So what's, one, what's some of the criteria that define fascism? One of the first one is this idea of nationalism, right? Some people even say tribalism, but it was the idea that the people are the state and the state is the people, right? Or as Mussolini put it, everything for the state, nothing against the state. They didn't really distinguish between the people and the state. And so this idea of having a national will and a national identity and a national direction was very, very important. Now, some people confuse this, right? There is a spectrum of national, uh, nationalism. So being patriotic about your country doesn't make you a fascist, right? Most people have some degree of uh, sense of pride in their country or their national uh, you know, history or identity, right? That, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about here. The sort of nationalism you saw within fascism really was more about this idea that there is a collective national will which is represented by the state and that there is not really any distinction between the state and the people, 
right? That's the sort of nationalism that you saw prominent within fascist ideology. Uh, what's another idea? Authoritarianism. So authoritarianism in this sense is the idea that because the state and the people are one, therefore the leaders of the state are essentially the leaders of the people. They speak for the people, right? But there, there's, again, they, they really blur the lines between this, but it's the idea that wh whoever is essentially running the nation um, is, is the representation of the national will. And therefore, they have an, an extreme amount of authority in order to push through what it is they want from a legislative perspective, what it is they want from an overall uh, sense of, of how industry is going to be run, about how education is going to be run, right? So there's, there's that authoritative nature within fascism. Another component is totalitarianism. Now, some people use the words authoritarianism and totalitarianism almost interchangeably, but they're actually a little bit different. The authoritarianism is what I just described, right? It's the idea of a strong leader standing at the helm of the nation, you know, directing where it's going to go on behalf of the people. Totalitarianism um, is, is connected to that, but it, it's, it goes a little bit further. It's this idea that whatever that national will is, whatever that's been determined, it, now it invades every aspect of culture. So it, it's not just simply that you have a strong leader that has a great deal of executive authority and power. It's the fact that that ends up getting wielded in the arts and entertainment, in education, in healthcare. Essentially, there's, there's no aspect of your life that is in some way being directed and influenced uh, by the leader, by the national will, et cetera, right? So that totalitarianism is important because, again, it's, it's no matter where you go, whether you're going to the store, whether you're going to school, whether you're going to the doctor, whether you're turning on your TV and watching the news, or you're watching a movie, or you're listening to music, right? That whole political aspect uh, permeates all of it, right? That's, you know, that's the total part of totalitarianism, right? There's, there's no area that the state is not either directing or directly influencing in a, in a very substantive way. What's another component? Militarism. Now, again, militarism has a spectrum, right? If you're if you've served in the military, you're proud of your military, or you believe that sometimes war is necessary, that's not militarism, right? That's just you know basic you know, defense of your country. Militarism is more this idea that you're using what you consider to be almost like the moral authority of war in order to not only address foreign policy, but domestic policy as well, right? And you, and you see this terminology used a lot, the war on drugs, the war on poverty. It's this idea that in a time of war, there's a national crisis where everybody gets together in order to work for a singular purpose. And a lot of people within fascist ideology liked that sort of uh, arrangement of society during wartime, and they wanted to keep that arrangement during peacetime as well in order to solve other problems. Uh, but you, you see it you know, boil over into where in fascist states, you see the leaders of the states a lot of times wearing military uniforms. And that's because they, they like that sense of authority and that, you know, kind of that, that moral dynamic with respect to uh, fighting a war or, or addressing a problem and all hands on deck and a hierarchical structure in order to deal with that problem, et cetera. Right? So that's, that's that militaristic component that you see prominent within fascist ideology. Uh, another one that you might find somewhat shocking, especially since communists claim to hate fascists so much, collectivism. Collectivism was a key component of fascist uh, ideology, and because it was this idea that, as, as Mussolini said again, right, nothing, um, you know, the, the idea that the state is the people, and so therefore there's nothing outside of the boundaries of the state, and this applied to economics as well. 
And we're going to go into this when we get into our four points, but it, it was the idea that the state would have an active part to play in controlling economic activity and controlling who owned resources, right? So that collectivist nature was, was very prominent within fascist ideology, both in Italy and in Germany. All right, so now that you have a, a basic idea of, of the components of fascism, right, common characteristics within fascism, let's go into, you know, discussing some specifics on those in order to determine whether or not you think it's a left-wing ideology or it's more in line with a right-wing ideology. So the first one that we're going to talk about here is fascism and free markets. So communists like to claim that, that fascism is a, is a form of capitalism. And, and in fact, if you, if you read Trotsky, Trotsky liked to, liked to talk about uh, essentially communist prophecy. It was this idea that once capitalism you know, reached those end stages where it was imploding on itself because of you know, the different classes rising up and the internal contradictions within capitalism, once that took place, there would be this last breath, this last gasp of capitalism. And they started to treat fascism in the, in the late 20s as if that was the last gasp of capitalism. But then let, let's look at what people like Hitler and, and Mussolini actually had to say about capitalism. Um, they hated it, right? They were, they were virulently anti-capitalist. And in fact, um, they both identified more with socialism. Nazi is an acronym for the National Socialist Workers Party, right? If you look at Mussolini's early life, again, he, he also was a very prominent socialist. And if you look at the Nazi party platform and the Italian uh, fascist platform, you're not going to see free market principles in there. All right, let's give some examples. One, they believe in the nationalization of industry, right? And another way to put this is the, the collectivization of industry or um, essentially the government takeover of industry. So when you look at aspects of the Nazi party platform, they believe that everything from major, like critical industries should be owned by the state. They also believe that anything like a big box store should be owned by the state. Now, Sometimes people claim that Hitler was actually a capitalist because he still allowed for some private ownership of the means of production. But if you actually look at what Hitler said, he essentially stated that provided that an industry or provided that a business was working in accordance with the national will, what was the national will? Whatever Hitler said the national will was, then he would allow them to operate. But the moment they didn't operate with under his rules or the moment they weren't producing in accordance with what he thought they should be, he would take them over. So even if you were a, a quote-unquote private business, you were still operating under so many regulations, so many rules from the state that it, it's really straining the word to call it private at that point. But the moment you stepped out of line or the moment you weren't producing in accordance with what Hitler wanted to, they took you over. Right? That, that's not a free market principle. That's a collectivist principle. That's a principle that is far more in line with Marx because what's communism? Communism is the abolition of the private ownership of the means of production. Okay, someone explain to me how nationalizing industry is a right-wing political ideology or, 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 or a pro-capitalist ideology. It's exactly the opposite. You will not find free market advocates or capitalists arguing for the government takeover of industry. And it's interesting because sometimes communists will say, well, see, that's anti-communist because communists believe in the people owning the industry. Well, fascists would come back and say, wait a second, the people is the state, the state are the people, so this is the people owning the industry. And funny enough, even when communists say, well, that's not true communism, okay, great. Well, in every country that has actually tried to carry out Marxist ideology, it's always been the government running stuff. So spare me this idea that it's just the people owning things, right? It's the government owning things. And that's the way they tried to do it as well. What's another component here? Um, oh, the abolition of what they called unearned income. 
So think of this almost like your stock market or, or your investment plan. So if you've got a 401k right now, right, you have invested in, in companies and you get a return on that investment, right? Well, according to Nazis, according to fascists, that is unearned income. So yeah, you might own the equipment or you might own the building, but if you're not in there actually operating the equipment, actually producing the products that are coming out of the building, that's unearned income. And they did not like that, right? So, so this whole idea of, of using investment in order to make money, but also in order to help fuel the economy, no, they didn't like that. That was unearned income. Um, another component was regulations, regulations, regulations. Again, any sort of private ownership of the means of production within fascist states, that doesn't mean they were just free to produce whatever they wanted based off of consumer demand. They, they were only free to produce insofar as they were producing in accordance with what the government wanted. And the government told them exactly how to run their business, uh, exactly what their employees could do. They, they were big on profit sharing, which again, profit sharing isn't in and of itself bad, but when the government's coming in and saying that this is the way you have to run your business, um, then it becomes problematic. And again, that's, that's how fascists looked at it. And I find it interesting that when you look at the way, when you look at a lot of people in the left in America who say, you know, they're not socialists, well, ask them what they want to do. Okay, maybe they don't want to nationalize industry, but they want to control industry to such a degree where industry has to work or industry has to produce what they want you to produce. I mean, you actually saw one Congresswoman, uh, Maxine Waters, come out and slip and say that if it was up to her, they would want to nationalize or socialize, she slipped up and said socialize first, the oil industry. So again, if you're not producing the way that the government wants you to, they're gonna take it over. Um, fascists were also a big fan of government-run healthcare and government-run education. This goes into that whole totalitarian streak. Now, you can look back and say, well, wait a second, in most countries we have public education. Sure, but again, the fascists were big believers in this because they saw education as the primary way to push an ideology and to make sure that, that again, people within the nation state were operating in accordance with the national will and it wasn't just about uh, directing the economy, it was about directing every aspect of your life so that people were growing up in a sort of society where everything was just inculcated. And, and you grew up in an, in an education system that taught you what to believe. Um, let's look at another one here. Here's, here's just a quick rundown of some of the things that were in the Nazi party platform. Guaranteed jobs, abolition of under income, nationalization of all large corporations and trusts, profit sharing in all major industries, uh, expanding old age insurance. They were really big on, on the whole social security idea. They really thought the government should be running all of those sorts of things. Uh, government takeover of big business stores, um, et cetera. Uh, they were also, Nazis were also really big. Uh, they had a huge campaign uh, uh, against smoking. They were very anti-tobacco. They were very uh, big on environmentalism, alternative medicines, whole grains. Uh, they supported vegetarianism. There was actually a big push to try to move the German people into vegetarianism because they thought that the meat industry and whatnot was a, it was an apparatus of, of capitalism. Um, they also used a lot of um, terms that are really popular within uh, left-wing ideas. So things like logocentrism, deconstructionism, a lot of these were actually pushed by, by fascist thinkers. Um, they were also big on purging the authority of the church. They did not like the idea of the church because the church represented a different authority that was then competing with the state. So for those people who go out there and say that you know Hitler was actually you know, pro-Christian, <laughs> no he wasn't. Uh, if anything, he believed in a kind of almost secular paganism. Uh, but he, he was very much against Christianity, Judaism, Catholicism, et cetera. 
Um, let's look at the Italian fascist platform. Uh, so they were big on lowering the voting edge, the abolition of the Senate, the creation of a national technical council, because again, this, this fed into this whole idea that what fascists were essentially doing is they were just applying science to running to the economy and to the running, they're basically applying science to sociology. And uh, they were going to create a new socialist man and a new fascist man that was going to be happy with their lot because the collective was everything. Uh, they believed in uh, a one-time expro expropriation of all riches. So think about that. That's the government basically coming in and saying that they can confiscate uh, any wealth that they want in order to redistribute it the way that they want. Uh, they believed in seizure of all goods belonging to the church. Uh, the sequestration of all war profits, and the nationalization of the arms industry, among other industries. All right, so that's just a, a couple, couple things to look at within fascist platforms. And you tell me, does that sound like capitalist doctrine? I mean, nothing about that is capital. Nothing about that is free market, right? Everything that I just described fars fall more in line with what we call either a socialist style economy or a corporatist economy. And, and the socialists will come back and say, well, no, that's not what we believe. We believe in the workers owning all the means of production. Again, a fascist would say, yes, so do we, and there's no difference between the people and the state. So you, you judge. Is fascism pro-capitalism? No. There's absolutely nothing in their platform that you could look at and say that that is a, that is a free market program. Um, it, it is all born out of left-wing ideology and left-wing ideas on how the economy should be run. All right, what's another component here? Fascism opposes the classically liberal beliefs. So when we talk about, you know, when we talk about liberalism, we're not talking about liberalism in the modern sense within America. We're talking about classical liberalism, right? Free markets, individual liberty, private property rights, representative government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right, fascism opposed that. They, they believe that, that classical liberal thought, um, that idea of individual liberty uh, was actually contrary to what they believed true freedom was. Right, so again, I, I think this is interesting because they don't get rid of the word freedom. They don't get rid of the word liberty. They change the meaning of it. So when, when we talk about individual liberty or freedom within the United States, we generally talk about that in terms of individual liberty. Your right to live your life the way you want, provided that you're not infringing on the rights of, some, of someone else to do the same thing. That's what we mean. That is the, the classical sense. That's not what fascists meant. Fascists meant that you weren't truly free Unless you, you had the provision of certain basic things, right? A, a job, healthcare, education. And then you also weren't truly free unless you were operating within the state apparatus, right? Unless you were operating within the national will. Um, so again, this goes back to a, a really interesting argument where fascists actually thought that, that fascism was kind of the highest form of democracy. And I know that sounds strange because in America, we generally associate democracy with freedom and voting and things like that. That's not specifically what democracy means. Democracy means rule by the people. And so, yes, some of the earlier forms of democracy that we see in Athens and things like that were, were heavily defined by the idea of everybody getting a say, everybody getting a vote, or at least a lot of people. Obviously, there was a lot of aristocracy within Athenian democracy. But within fascism, because they believed that the people in the state were essentially one, then Obviously, the, the people were running the country. The people were in charge, right? But if you were to go to a fascist and talk about your individual rights, they would think you were nuts. They focused on what they referred to as collective rights, 
right? So it was it was certain rights that the people should have, and it was almost always uh, geared toward commodities or services, right? You have you have a right to have your place within the collective, right? And within that collective, as a part of that national society, you might have a right to a job, or you might have a right to healthcare, or you might have a right uh, to education, or a right to food, or a livable wage, or whatever it was. But everything was about collective rights. They rejected the notion of individual liberty or individual rights. Everything was really focused around that collective sense and that collective approach to rights. Um, so again, I, I asked the question, what does that sound like? Does that, that sound like right-wing ideology or does that sound like left-wing ideology? Is it the right-wing in this country that is constantly talking about collective rights or is it the left-wing in this country that's talking about collective rights? Right? Do, do you see classical liberal thinkers like um, John Locke or Adam Smith talking about collective rights? Or do you see socialist and Marxist thinkers like Marx and Engels talking about collective rights, right? So that's a, it's a huge distinguishing feature. Uh, what's another thing that I find interesting? Well, Mussolini and Hitler started out as international socialists and became national socialists. This is, and, and I want to stress this point, this is important, right? It, it seems like a, a simple distinction. But, it, but it's actually critical because it changed the whole course of history with the way communists and fascists uh, interacted with one another. Because if you look at the early 20s when fascism was really getting going within Italy, um, Mussolini was actually the editor of Avanti, which was a big socialist newspaper. The socialists got mad at him in Italy because he ended up supporting World War I and entries, uh, um, entry into World War I. And, and the international socialists were, were against that at that point, right? And so there was this, this push. Well, what Mussolini started to identify was that he liked socialism, but he didn't think international socialism actually worked. He didn't think Bolshevism was working. Not to mention the fact that you had a lot of socialists that didn't like the idea that they had to take their marching orders from Moscow. And that was one of the things that happened in 1928, where Stalin was essentially putting out that, look, if you're not taking your marching orders from Moscow, then you're not a true international socialist. And that's, that pushed off this whole thing of, of pushing off fascists, who were, again, just in many respects, national socialists, pushing them off and saying, no, 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 they're right wing, right? They're, they're, not, they're not socialists. Okay, well, look at their policy positions and tell me how they stopped becoming socialists. Because Mussolini, when they were kicking them out of the international socialist party, said, you, you know, you're not going to lose me. You know, 12 years of my life has been spent at this. I, I, am a, I am a socialist. And what he identified was, again, it, it's this, it's this um, sociological phenomenon. International socialism essentially acts that you probably, they, they act under this assumption that you'll have more solidarity or more in common with a laborer in another country uh, that is in, in, within your same economic class, right? That's where you hear this workers of the world unite, right? So international socialism was based off this idea of not so much national identity as it was class identity. And what Mussolini and Hitler and others understood was that a, a German factory worker probably had more in common with the manager of the factory than he had with a worker working in a, a factory in Vladivostok. Right, because there are certain cultural norms within countries that, that provide a kind of national identity. And so what they found was is that people like the, the principles of socialism with respect to economics, politics, philosophy, etc. But 
they associated more with people within their own culture than they did with people in other cultures. And so Mussolini's idea was if we really want to push socialism, then we're going to have to take more of a nationalist approach rather than an international approach because the international, he didn't feel that the international approach was getting him anywhere. Right? So this idea that you know, Hitler or Mussolini were thrown out because they were fake socialists or they weren't real socialists is garbage when you look at their actual reasoning. So I, I, that, that's really important to look at. Um, and, and it's, and it's important distinguishing characteristic because if, if Mussolini and Hitler started off as socialists and then there was some major departure where all of a sudden they became free market capitalists, then, then that would be one thing that never happened. They still tried to implement socialist economic theories and policy, but they tried to do it on a national level. And, and one of the most interesting phenomena on this and why was there so much hatred between socialists and fascists? They were competing for the same people for political power, right? You saw people that were socialists one day that were fascists the next day. You saw people that were fascists that became socialists. That's because there wasn't a huge difference with respect to their overall objectives when it came to running the economy or how they viewed human interaction or class, right? There wasn't a big difference, but they were competing for the same people. And so there was a lot of, a lot of hatred, a lot of infighting. Right? You, you, see that, you see that same phenomenon taking place in other countries where you have two political parties that are actually pretty similar and they end up hating each other and fighting each other and making big deals out of relatively small differences because they're competing for the same voters. It's similar phenomenon going on here. Um, so again, this idea that, that Mussolini or Hitler were raging capitalists or free markets or, or classical liberals, it's all garbage. You look at almost everything that they tried to implement with, with respect to the countries that they were running, almost every single policy lines up far more with left-wing ideology than it would with anything that you would consider to be classically liberal or right-wing ideology within the American political tradition. All right, let's go to the fourth point. Um, this, is, this is one that I find very, very interesting. You're going to want to listen to this. Because this is where we talk about progressives in the United States in the 1920s what did they think of fascism? We know what they think of fascism now, or we know what they say about fascism now, but what did the left have to say about fascism before it became overly brutal within Italy or before Hitler invaded Russia? What were they seeing before that? Because that, that is going to give us far more insight into where this was lining up within American political thought. Well, let, let's go ahead and look at some, some quotes. So Lincoln Steffen, Lincoln Steffen was a, a journalist and he's famous for being the one that went to Soviet Russia and said, I have seen the future and it works, right? So we know, we know he was sympathetic to communist ideology, right? But what did he think about fascist ideology? Well, it turns out he actually said some really nice things about Mussolini early on. Now, again, I want, I want to stress something. You can always go back and find quotes from these guys later on talking about how bad fascism is or how bad Nazism is. And a lot of that takes place after the Axis powers declared war on the Soviet Union. A lot of it takes place afterwards. But Lincoln Stephan originally said that God had formed Italy out of Mussolini's rib. You know, he really thought that what was the experimentation that was taking place within Italy under Mussolini was going to show kind of the, the decadent, decaying corpse of some of these classical liberal ideas. He actually once referred to Mussolini as a divine dictator. And what's interesting is that in other writings, he talks about the Russian-Italian method. So again, he's looking at both communist 
um, and, and socialism within the Soviet Union, and he's looking at socialism within the, the fascist apparatus within Italy, he doesn't really see a big difference. All right, what about another one? How about Ida Tarbell? So Ida Tarbell was a, a muckraker journalist. She's famous for really taking on Standard Oil, right, and the trust busting. Loved Mussolini. I mean, you, you look at some of the stuff that Ida Tarbell had to say about Mussolini when she first met him and first went over to Italy, and it was glowing. Now, now again, people will look at stuff that she wrote later. You know, as World War II really starts to kick off for the United States, and it starts to become evident that these regimes are, are <laughs> becoming really brutal. All of a sudden, she doesn't like the brutality, but that doesn't mean she didn't like the initial plan they were laying out. right? She, she thought Mussolini was doing a great job. Um, how about Charles Beard? Now, Charles Beard is an important one because Charles Beard wrote the economic interpretation of the Constitution. Um, he was another one of these guys that was definitely on the left, economic historian. And when he looks at the Constitution, he, he tries to interpret it all from more of an economic standpoint. And a lot of the theories that you hear that, you know, the founders weren't such great guys. They just didn't want to pay their taxes. And this was all economically driven. And that's why they fought the revolution. A lot of that can be chalked up to Charles Beard. Um, but he, he, actually described, he actually described Italian fascism beyond question. It is an amazing experiment reconciling individualism and socialism, politics and technology, and national destiny, right? So here's, here's Charles Beard, who I guarantee you, your kids are, are reading his textbooks when they go off to college to understand the, the economics of the Constitution. And here he is praising fascism, praising fascism. How about, her, oh, one of my favorites right here, Herbert Crowley. Herbert Crowley wrote Promise of the American Life which if, if you actually look at what was going on in, in Italy in the early 20s, if you actually look at some of the idea, fascist ideology, right? Like take away everything you associate with fascism, um, you know, post-World War II, where you're thinking about the Holocaust, right? Like just separate that for a moment and just look at the philosophy behind Italian fascism and then go read A Promise of American Life by Herbert Crowley. You're going to be shocked at how many similarities there were. And Herbert Crowley was the founder of the New Republic. It's one of the, the longest serving progressive left wing, um, you know, you know, you know uh, magazines out there within the United States. Uh, Herbert Crowley was also, a, he was a big fan of, um, you know, the idea of national myths, um, which, was, which was another common, common uh, characteristic of fascism. Uh, so Herbert Crowley, founder of the New Republic, big time left wing guy, praising Mussolini, praising uh, Italian fascism. Uh, to this guy. Uh, W.B. Du Bois, he uh, actually visited Nazi Germany in 1937 and spoke very well of it. How about, um, let me see, what's another good one? Um, Stuart Chase. Uh, so Stuart Chase, who's actually credited for naming the New Deal, uh, he's the one that looked at Russians, uh, Russia and the Soviet Union and said, why should the Russians have all the fun remaking the world? Uh, but then what was interesting was that if you look at a, a lot of the components of the New Deal, you see a lot of that same left-wing ideology, even almost um, kind of fascist idea of how to plan the state. And one of the common statements was, you know, we planned in war, we can plan in peace. Uh, again, that goes back to this whole idea of, well, if, if we can, you know, win World War II, then surely we can beat poverty. And the same sort of uh, national action and government controls and rationing and government direction of the economy that we use to win a war can also be used to solve these other problems. In fact, Hugh Johnson, so Hugh Johnson was on the War Industries Board under Woodrow Wilson. And Woodrow Wilson was, I mean, that 
they really set up more of a socialist style economy when they were fighting World War I. But then he also worked as part of the National Recovery Administration for FDR. So this was part of the New Deal, right? And one of the, the symbols that they used in the New Deal was the Blue Eagle, right? And so they, there was a lot of social pressure and political pressure on companies to correspond and work with the New Deal. The New Deal got so bad. At one point, they were literally throwing people in jail or taking them to court because under the New Deal, they did price fixing. So you actually had a dry cleaning service that charged under what the New Deal said they had to charge. They took them to court. You had the, the, the famous uh, chicken case where they, they took uh, the, these people that owned a, a store that, that sold chickens to court because under the New Deal, you couldn't walk into a store and pick your chicken. Right, so th this is how crazy and draconian the New Deal actually got. But here's what, here's something that's interesting to understand about Hugh Johnson, the one that was running the National Recovery Administration. When he got into office, guess whose picture he hung in his office? Benito Mussolini's. So now the guy that is serving in one of the most important aspects of the New Deal and the National Recovery Administration under FDR is hanging pictures of Benito Mussolini in his office. Not only that, he was handing out the fascist tract called the corporate state. Now, it's interesting. Some people talk about the corporate state and they think corporations run everything. No, no, no. They're thinking about corporatists in the sense of trade unions and the idea that, again, all the workers own the means of production. So he was handing this out. During the DNC, um, he said that we needed to follow, during the Democratic National Committee, he was, he was credited with saying that we needed to follow Mussolini's model. And then on top of that, he also held enormous public rallies under the Blue Eagle, right? This was about encouraging people, you know, that national will to, you know, fight for recovery. And, and again, I want you to imagine a right-wing politician holding that kind of rally under a government symbol like a Blue Eagle, in order to encourage people to comply with government regulations and direction to the economy. I wasn't a bunch of right-wing guys doing that. That was FDR and Hugh Johnson, right? But here is probably, here's probably the best, one of the best quotes I, I think we can use for this. H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells was actually at one time a leading member of the Fabian uh, Socialists. Um, he actually didn't think the Fabian Socialists went far enough. He was giving a speech at Oxford to the young liberals, which at that time was, again, it wasn't classically liberal, it was the progressives. And he said that he wanted like a Phoenix-like rebirth of progressivism, that, that we needed strong leadership and authorities to come in and direct the economy. And he said, he goes, he finally found a way to summarize his view of what he wanted. And what did he describe it as? Liberal fascism. Another way he described it as was enlightened Nazism. Okay, so this myth that you have been force-fed through popular culture, through academia, through the media, that fascism bears some resemblance to right-wing conservatism in the United States because we're patriotic, because we support the military or the police, is absurd. Right, you have leading left-wing intellectual after leading left-wing intellectual within the 20s and 30s that were all about the fascist agenda. Couldn't get enough of it. And now they all have the audacity to come back 40, 50, 60, 70 years later and tell us that we're the fascists based on what? 
show me the platform position within American conservatism, within the Republican Party platform. Show me the position that lines up with fascist ideology. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a bet. You line up the Republican platform and show me all the things that you think are fascist in there. I'll line up all the Democrat, the Democrat platform and put it right next against the Italian fascist platform and we'll see how much of that adds up. Because I think what you're going to find is that, to me, the overwhelming evidence suggests that when you're talking about conservatism, when you're talking about the right within the American political tradition, fascism bears little to no resemblance. When you're talking about modern leftist progressivism, starting in the early 20th century up to now, you're going to see a whole lot that corresponds with fascism in the way that they see people, in the way that they see authority, in the way that they see organizing the economy, in the way that they see property rights, in the way that they see to provide healthcare, in the way that they see to provide education. You're going to see a whole lot of similarities. And I think it's about time that we call them on it. But you need to be equipped because when they make that, when they call you a fascist, I want you to look right back and say, I want you to define fascism for me and tell me what's wrong with it. Because I guarantee you what they'll say is militarism and racism. And that's where you go back and say, no, 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 I agree with you. That, that militarism, that racism, that was horrible. I want to know what other aspects of fascism you disagree with and see if they can even give you any. Because it, it, is, it is the socialist and it is Marxism starting all the way back in 1928 that worked incredibly hard in order to distinguish themselves from fascism. And they did a good job of it. And that's why a lot of the left-wing intellectuals that you see praising fascism early on all of a sudden change their tune, not when they're cracking down on civil liberties, not when they're taking over companies and running them. You see the crackdown take place after the Axis powers invades the Soviet Union. That's when a large portion of the American left said they're going to make their bed with the communists rather than the fascists. But go back and read the earlier stuff. Go back and look at the party platform and you tell me what it bears a greater resemblance to. Now, does this mean I think that anybody that wants you know, some aspects of that are, are automatically horrible, evil fascists? No, I don't. I can actually hold a nuanced position. I can actually distinguish. I don't think that everybody who happens to be a socialist is automatically Hitler or Mussolini or Stalin. But let's be intellectually honest about what the actual platforms, about what the actual characteristics of these different political ide ideologies are so that we can actually come and, and have a good discussion on where they fall within the political spectrum and certainly with things like fascism and socialism, how do we stop it? So I hope this has been helpful. I hope this has been helpful. I encourage you to you know, listen to this podcast, watch this podcast, do us a favor, share this one. This is a good one to share. This is a good one to write a five-star review for on. Give us some feedback, give us some comments. But I guarantee you, you have friends that, and you probably have college students that are so terrified of being called a fascist that they just sit there and shut up because they automatically assume that fascism is, is that is what happens when the right wing gets out of control. Nope, fascism is just another variant of left-wing ideology. Again, doesn't mean that everyone on the left is a fascist, just like it doesn't mean everyone on the left is a socialist. And even if they are a socialist, doesn't mean they're Stalin. Even if, even if they like certain aspects, even though they don't know it, right, it doesn't mean that they're a horrible person. 
But if we actually want to understand what these ideologies mean, what they stand for, and what they produce, then it's time to understand them correctly, categorize them correctly, and stop using it as a bludgeon against somebody simply because you disagree with them. Because if, if that's what you want to engage in, well, I got some really bad news for the left in this country. Because I see organizations like Antifa, and I don't see a big difference between what Antifa wants and the way they behave and the way the black shirts and the brown shirts behaved within Germany and Italy. All right. Thank you again for joining us on Making the Argument. Again, share this with your friends. Uh, listen to it on our podcast. Watch it on YouTube. Leave us that feedback, and we'll see you next time. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.